All right, Zig coming in on the top. Today on the show, we have Bill Million of the Feelies. Bill's a guitarist and co-founder of the Feelies. Out of Heldon, New Jersey, the Feelies started in the 70s. Um, Crazy Rhythms, their debut record, was voted 49 in the top 100 albums in the Rolling Stones magazine. Spin Magazine also said it was number 49 of best alternative records. Um, and now they are coming out with their first live record, Some Kind of Love, featuring the music of the Velvet Underground. Some Kind of Love has 18 tracks on it, casting a wide net over the Velvet Underground's catalog. We're going to listen to a tune. This is White Light, White Heat, um, the Feelies take on the Velvet Underground classic. Dig it. <laughs> White Light, White Heat, The Feelies, Some Kind of Love, available now on all streaming platforms. This is exciting. I love The Feelies, and I love The Velvet Underground, so this is like a cool meld of worlds, at least for me. Um, Also, The Feelies, they went on tour with Lou Reed back in the day, and um, they even backed Lou. Bill gets into it in our conversation. Um, If you're a Feelies fan, I've talked to uh, Brenda before. So if you look in the podcast catalog, you'll see you can hear our conversation as well. And uh, also Tony and John Baumgartner from The Tripes. 
So if you know anything about the Feelies, you know how involved they are with their community as far as like the Tripes and the Speed the Plow and the Willies and all these bands like interweave together. And that was one kind of through line of this conversation that was a takeaway with tones interweaving. I also noticed that the Feelies do that with friends. Um, Either way, um, I was very excited to talk with Bill. Uh, Before we get to that, uh, I play in a band called C-Level, letter C-Dash. We're a high-energy funk-punk reggae rock group where we take acoustic instruments and run them through Marshall amplifiers. And we are opening for the Bumping Uglies February 3rd, if you're in the Ohio area, at the um, Beachland Ballroom. So that's my one plug. Also, the Feelies have a few dates coming up. Um, November 16th, Thursday, in um, Woodstock, New York. And November 17th in Philadelphia um, at the World Cafe Live. So go to thefeelies.com for all the ticket info on that. Check out Some Kind of Love on all streaming platforms. Lastly, if you can like, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast on any of the podcast platforms, it helps me keep talking to cool guests like Bill and sharing insights with you. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Bill from the Feelies. And to, to get into it, I wanted to ask you about the Outkids. If you can tell me how that got going. Um, wow, you're going way back with that. So, yeah, that, that was quite a long time ago. And um, I think the genesis of that band, if memory serves me right, was um, Glenn and I uh, lived in the same town. And... Originally, I I think I was like walking through a neighborhood where he lived, uh, unbeknownst to me. And I heard a band, you know, or sound coming out of a garage. And it was like, I want to be your dog by the Stooges. And I was already a big Stooges fan. Uh, My wife, uh, who was my girlfriend at the time, would go see the Stooges wherever they played. I mean, I've saw them quite a few times. And uh, so having heard that and you know in this suburban town which was i mean no one knew who the stooges were i mean you you know we heard a lot of this music from uh the original wfmu and danny fields was a dj for a period of time and he would he would play the stooges the mc5 and so it was a really um a bit of a surprise to hear this coming from from a garage so so i stopped in and um you know we kind of shared uh, our musical thoughts about the Stooges and what our aspirations were. We were both uh, musicians just kind of getting started playing and, uh, you know, one thing led to another. So eventually I joined um, a group that Glenn was playing with and that became the OutKids. Uh, I started out on bass, Glenn played guitar um dave who is our current percussionist played drums and and we had a lead singer okay and were you playing did you start on bass i started on bass yes like uh uh, out of out of the band did you start like as far as playing music for yourself you started on bass uh yes actually a little bit of both i played bass and i also played guitar as well but with with the start of the out kids it was bass gotcha okay okay cool and um so through that experience did like because you're in glenn's guitar playing and 
musicality is like you guys interlock in this way that I haven't like it's very I, I, I did I, I guess my question is with that when you started playing in Outkids did you notice some of that like musical chemistry that would you would see later in the feelies and so on kind of emerging um I I can't say that I I did I think really uh what it was is we had a lot of uh a lot of music in common i think it was more so that that kind of drew us toward each other uh a lot of you know a lot of the same bands we like the beatles the stones uh like i said stooges uh, velvet underground the mc5 you know the kinks um you know different different bands like that and uh, i think it really wasn't in until the feelies that we started to kind of realize that we we always had an interest in bands that um where there were two guitar players and you know even when you think of the beatles um there is you know there's a lot of guitar interplay going on uh even with the stones um keith even you know playing when he plays within himself which he did you know for a while he played a lot of the parts like i think on gimme shelter he played all the parts but there's still that interplay and i think that that's what uh, that's what we that's what we were into and i think we we just kind of went from there and then of course you know playing together for so long it kind of goes along with it as well yeah, but I mean, knowing when someone's like kind of going for a thing, like, oh, they're referring to this. I, I know that idea. I can kind of dive into that, you know, having that same kind of vocabulary makes that makes sure. that possible. That's cool. Well, I, I think uh, so. I mean, beyond beyond the guitar interplay, I think it's like what um, I was kind of fascinated by the way Keith Richards referred to it as, um, which is like weaving. And that's really kind of um that's kind of what it's like i mean that's you know when i play in the feelies i feel that that's almost what i'm doing i'm kind of weaving um and it is i mean it's not just with glenn's guitar it's with stan's drumming and uh kind of have a i i think with the feelies it's kind of a different approach um i think you know it's more based in rhythm guitar and drums locking in and allowing the bass to kind of go off and play maybe more melodic parts a little bit higher up on the neck um you know that sort of thing um whereas i think a lot of bands traditionally over a long period of time the foundation was bass and drums and i don't think that with the feelies i don't think that's uh the case that's it that's true that's true well, listen like because I did doing a deep dive to get ready to talk with you is like there's a certain like rhythmic drone drive that everything is kind of built off of and it's inter it, it's interesting that it's guitar and drum is that like um so like when you guys transitioned into the feelies right because that's what happened with the the out kids mm -hmm. and then you hop on guitar um is that like a was was those like the kind of was that kind of music being made and you're like oh we got to put this somewhere else this can't be this or did was it like a loss of members and then who's around let's do this now that transitioned it to the feelies 
um well it's it, it started out we we had some, we're in somewhat of a position where the, the reason why the out kids uh stopped playing was uh like i had mentioned we had a lead vocalist and that's that's what he did he didn't you know that was his sole role in the band and uh when he left um we decided to continue and we didn't we didn't have a singer so glenn became the singer almost by default and uh we we auditioned singers um we had some comical experience experiences (laughs) auditioning singers uh we had one guy at the time we were practicing my basement and um we had one guy come by and he referred to himself as eggy and uh, (laughs) with an e and he um you know we started playing songs and he started like flying all over like my basement like rolling on the floor and uh it it was (laughs) i mean you couldn't have made it up and um so i think at that point we just realized well this this is not going to work and uh you know it's kind of it's hard to find people to play with it uh you know you're comfortable with and right you, you know uh i think we were in a somewhat unique situation because um a lot of a lot of the musicians that uh that we work with are really from the neighborhood where we grew up um we have different bands that we kind of alternate around with but it's the feelies are part of i I think a larger community of musicians um that are all local i mean people that we went to high school with uh and you know even earlier than that just neighbors like diving into to your to your guys's history it gets very convoluted very quick because of that and like which is cool and i think that's what makes it very uh uniquely you guys and like it doesn't sound like um anything else i've ever heard and i I, that's that's your guys's slice of life in audio in uh, in sound which is amazing and one it's also another another factor of it it's also amazing everyone can support all these individual projects like so like okay so the feelies get going eggy doesn't make it (laughs) (laughs) um and singing singing is always like difficult especially like when you you're just kind of starting and like, it, 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 it it's, I don't know. It's it, it's one of those things where I, definitely that's the the crutch of like so many bands is finding someone that can do that, and like when you find someone that can handle whatever like you're coming up with, and if it's someone who's writing it, I think that makes it more to uh to the tonality of the band and tonality of the people you're working with, but um, so like uh so the feelies gets going. Um, when do you guys like, when, when does the first record come about? Like, are you playing a lot at that point? Um, more, more local. I I think at the time, uh, there, and when I say local, we did, uh, venture into, uh, New York city. Um, but there weren't really a lot of outlets, uh, for bands like ours back then. I, I think that didn't come till much later when, um rem i mean if as great of a band as rem is i think they're one of their biggest contributions is really opening up the entire country to a lot of 
a lot of bands. And uh, I think for us, initially, it, is, it was like Boston, um, New York, Chicago, L.A., San Francisco. And that was almost kind of it. Um, couldn't go to Bloomington, Indiana, um, you know, places like that uh, to play. It just wouldn't have been an audience. Um, so, you know, and I think just getting back to the, the point about the vocals, I, I mean, that's that's correct. Although we kind of started uh, with the idea um, as, you know, the, the vocals were just another instrument in the mix. So they weren't, again, it, it, it kind of wasn't what was accepted as traditional, uh, where the vocals typically sit on top of the mix. Um, and then there's the rest of the music. We kind of blended it in and, you know, some of it was by intent. Some of it was probably just being new to vocals. Um, but we treated it more as like an instrument in the mix. There were more like sort of droney type vocals that, that would come in and out of the mix. So that kind of helped. I mean, we've kind of moved a little bit away from that um, over time, you know, probably confidence has something to do with that. <laughs> well, definitely, definitely. And just knowing how to do it in like, and if it, it's it sounds like, sounds like there's, this interplay of weaving all these tones, right? If it's vocals, if it's drums, if it's guitar, and like slowly learn, you could working that in your guys' own way. Like I, diving into like crazy rhythms, I'm like, I've never heard anything like this. This is so cool. Like in trying to like understand, but also just, you know, I mean, just experience it. But like, but my music brain's trying to understand it, you know, I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> like, and like, well, a lot of it, though, you know, we, at the time, just prior to um, recording Crazy Rhythms, we, you know, we were listening to, uh, you know, Brian Eno, um, Wire was another group back then, but uh, but also like Philip Glass and Steve Reich. I, I remember going to see Steve Reich at uh, the Bottom Line in New York City, and uh, it just came out. It was it was almost like um, like like a lesson came out with all this percussion and um you know he basically demonstrated you know what is what's behind his approach to music you know he'd start with like a pair of claves and bring in african claves and uh like a marimba par and he just kept adding these parts but they they would kind of like weave in and out and one would take prominence and and it just has it you know, had this effect of um, just really interesting. It was a very active sort of approach to to music um, where it's, you know, we just found it much more interesting to do that from a listener's perspective. Um, we didn't want everything to be, uh, you know, upfront upon the first listen. So, you know, it was music that over time you might discover different things with. Was it? Well, I definitely think you guys did that. And I think, like, it, it's like, I don't know if the metaphor is like, instead of here's a cake, it's like, well, here's some flour, and you slowly see it build up into a cake. And there, I think there's, my brain definitely finds that interesting. Like, I'm definitely into seeing someone start with, like, a, a clave rhythm, rhythm and, and then seeing everything 
build off of that and then you can't unhear that clave that's in right, right. <laughs> you know it's drilled in there <laughs> like but the to see it come together there's a definite magic to that and like it's interesting too because a lot of a lot of music it's kind of like here it is now you don't really have time to build off things because people's attention seems to split very quickly but I don't think that's I don't think that's an overall case. I think that's just like what we're used to getting like on radio stuff is very quick. Here's the whole cake and it's gone. Next one. Um, yeah. But okay, so like at that point were you guys like playing before uh, uh Crazy Rhythms? Were you playing CBGBs and the, the venues like that that we were the kind of bounce off what we were saying before? Yeah, we okay. started out uh, CBGB's um, did shows at Max's Kansas City. Uh, there was another at one point. Uh, Mickey Ruskin from Max's Kansas City opened up a club called the Lower Manhattan Ocean Club. Um, we played there very early on when the club opened. Um, the Mud Club. I think we were one of the first bands, if not the first band, to open the Mud Club. Although. A conversation I had with Kate Pearson, she kind of takes exception to that. She claims it to be 52s where, so we just kind of joked about it. I, you know, I remember them putting the finishing varnish on the bar and still installing the PO, PA when uh, we played there. So, um, and, I, and I think it was, it, it might have been like the Mud Club that we uh, eventually agreed to. Uh, sign a contract with stiff records out of england with you know with the idea that glenn and i would produce the record and they, they were the only label i mean when we played at the mug club there were quite a number of labels the band was getting a lot of attention at that point and um there were a lot of labels that came by but the stipulation for us was that we had to produce because we, you know we just felt that producing was kind of part and parcel to songwriting uh, it was part of the songwriting process um so we didn't we didn't want to turn that over to somebody else um, and that kind of grew out of a lesson learned a couple years earlier um we were involved with uh, i don't know if you know who terry york is um uh, he was like television's original yes. manager yeah, they put out the okay. single little johnny jewel and uh he became our manager and we went to record uh demos um up at a studio in connecticut and when it came time to mix the engineer um you know suggested to glenn and i you know why don't you guys go out and get something to eat and i'll mix this and it'll be done when you come back and uh so kind of being new to it we said okay so we went out to get something to eat and we came back we were horrified at the way the song was mixed i mean it was just uh, it was it was definitely not us and it wasn't representative of any of the ideas that we had so that was a lesson that we learned right off and we just decided from that point forward uh you know we would we would produce um if we couldn't produce we'd rather go sell shoes you know <laughs> yeah. in the mall i well it, it 
the producer is a huge. It's that's that's the guy doing the final draft, basically. You know what I mean? And kind of overseeing like so many of these different aspects of it, and like when it that mix can totally. It's like it's like if you have a bad sound guy in the venue, the band could be amazing, but if the if it's not delivered right, you don't get the full picture. So like, did you guys did you say anything about that mix, or did it just was what it was? Um. Well, we never we never put it out. Okay. I mean, we, you know, we did we did voice our opinion. I don't I don't remember to to what degree and. You know, if we did it in front of the engineer, I just I don't recall, but I just I the takeaway was I mean for us was this wasn't going to happen again. Yeah, that's a definitely a that's a that's an important takeaway though, and that so at that point okay when crazy when you guys get the opportunity to record crazy rhythms, um, and you finally get something that says you can produce, um. What did you guys kind of have a sense of how to do that, or just you knew what you wanted? Does that make sense? Um, like, as far as like understanding the lingo, the mixing, like how the how the room worked at that point, or were you just kind of like? No, we. I mean, we didn't really have a lot of um, experience. I mean, we knew in terms of arrangements, um, we had a we had a good idea, but we were also, I think, novices in the studio, so what you know what kind of grew out of that was we just you know there's sometimes there's a benefit in knowing less um you know how to you know we started turning knobs and uh just you know overdriving like reverb to create sounds where temple blocks sound like almost like screeching cars and uh yeah, and we we always knew we were on to something if we'd start laughing about it. Like, just uh, wow, that sounds pretty cool. Let's let's see if we can, you know, do this elsewhere. And uh, you know, we just um, we're we're open to a lot of different things. So you know, we uh, at the time it was analog and tape. So we did some things with tape speeds. Um, we the studio that we recorded crazy rhythms at was was vanguard studios right down the street from the chelsea hotel in new york and um it was massive it it was kind of designed i think for orchestration uh so the the studio room itself was um kind of if you know what like um abbey road studios looks like if you've ever seen photos it's got a really high ceiling like almost several stories up uh but we made use of um, we also made use of these little hallways and cubby holes outside of the studio where we found they had a really nice natural sort of reverb to them. They were like hard surface areas and uh, we do a lot of the percussion parts um, in spaces like that. Cause is that why? Because uh, I, I don't remember who I was talking to. It might have been Brenda uh, like or. Or somebody else. They were. I, I, did you guys overdub symbols? Um. I don't. I don't recall overdubbing symbols. Why do you ask? Because I, I, 
I think the thing was like, yeah, there was no symbols. And then I listened back to Crazy Rhythms. I'm like, there's hi hats, there's symbols. I don't know who told me that and why. But like, well, uh, yeah. So what what you might be referring to was um, initially it kind of it kind of grew out of the guitars we were playing at the time. Glenn and I were both playing Fenders, and I think they were Stratocasters, and uh, we found that. Um, with our drummer before Anton uh, joined the band, um, again there, there was probably more of a traditional approach to playing, uh, you know, rock music with the drumming from a drumming perspective. We found that the cymbals were really kind of canceling out a lot of what we were doing on the guitars. Um, a part of that was also the the two guitars being the same, um, but what we had decided then was to for the most part not completely remove the symbols but really downplay the symbols take them away wherever possible and to complement the dynamics uh we started adding percussion parts so that's how that was kind of the genesis of adding a percussionist to the band um and then eventually i switched to playing gibson guitars to glenn's fenders and we found that that was a much better complimentary uh, fit it's like the humbucking like single coil balance um it's interesting i was talking with a uh, stephen hodges who recorded drums on um tom waits's swordfish trombones and uh rain dogs and like oh okay he like mm-hmm. had a very like tom had a very like there are no symbols in this in like a very like uh um keen sense that symbols cut out those frequencies and like right until steven explained it i I never really thought about that but then i forget i was talking with someone else and they were telling me the same thing which is why they got rid of symbols and then it, like oh no velvet underground that's what it was they they didn't use a lot of symbols either and like so it's interesting like that the lack there of that frequency brings out all this other type of element all of these other type of dynamic elements in music. Um, so it's like, I'm like, these guys are onto it. I, I'm just learning that no symbols means, means that's where it's at. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a sound, uh, you know, recently, um, a couple of years back, I had to go over to uh, South Korea and uh, I was telling this story to Glenn and um, I went into this uh store in seoul and it was all they sold were were temple blocks um of all sizes i mean and um i I just i I loved it i was just like walking around the store just picking up different size temple blocks and playing them and the woman um was getting really angry um and she didn't speak any english but i was with my daughter-in-law who is from korea and she explained to me that, um, you know, the, the woman was getting angry because I wasn't playing the temple blocks correctly. Now, I don't know. I, I don't know if this was because she was coming at it maybe from a religious aspect. Um, but I, I just, it, it, you know, later I said to my daughter-in-law, I said, you know, it's just, it's kind of ludicrous. Uh, it's, it's a sound. Um, there's no incorrect way, uh, to, play a, something like a temple block you can you know we, we've turned um 
snare drums upside down and played the snare piece with our hands as a percussion yeah. uh, sound. And uh, I've always wanted to, you know, probably when you're younger, you probably put baseball cards in the spokes of your... Yeah. You know, it, it's it's just a sound. And a cymbal is, is a sound. I mean, do you want to use that sound uh, in a particular arrangement? Um, or is there something else you could use? So it's not any... I, I, it's not any more important than any other sound, uh, I think. And, uh, you know, I, I think with drummers, they probably don't, you know, they lean on that for a dynamic and, um, not all drummers, not our drummer. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that's, I think that's very well said. And I think like, Maybe kind of like off the like superstition of like okay oh, to be a success, uh, successful band we need to do this the drummer should sound like that the singer should sound like that and if we don't have that we're we're missing something of this kind of like superstitious ethos of success right and like or or we're hitting the the block the wrong way and like I think it's knowing that it's a, just a tone and it's a color in your painting and you can paint or depict anything you want like it's such a a freeing aspect of of creating music or any art in that sense but like to be able to see it as that you know i think that takes a certain type of um kind of confidence in what you want to do and what you want to say and how to say it and like that's i, th I think what you with that story is a i think that's a good point on that that was very well said um so you guys are you're tracking crazy rhythms and you you're exploring this whole place um, when, uh, how long do you guys get to do this? Um, act actually for stiff records, extraordinarily yeah. <laughs> longer than, um, you know, what their other artists on the label got, uh, a lot of the English labels like stiff IRS at the time who initially signed the police, um, they're pretty kind of low budget. You know, you have a, you have a week, a couple weeks go in and, and, do and get this done so crazy rhythms i think it was recording four weeks and then mixing um we mixed at a different studio uh than the one we recorded at and uh i think that was two additional weeks so that was for stiff records it was somewhat unheard of um but we were perfectly happy with that yeah <laughs> Um, so when it came down to mixing, like you guys, you guys are producing. So were you mixing it, or were you like working with someone who was mixing it? Well, we worked with an engineer, okay, but okay. Uh, Glenn, Glenn and I were at the board. Gotcha. Um, which you know, nowadays it's a little different with like Pro Tools. I think the last um, last couple albums, well, not not in between which was our last studio album um but the one before that here before a lot of it was done it was done in a studio and there were mixing um uh, you know involved at the board but a lot of it's more like computer oriented like with you know programs like pro tools and um which you know i prefer and i i on a, I don't want to speak for Glenn, but I'm pretty sure, you know, same with him. He prefers, you know, sitting at the board. Yeah. Um, and where you're moving faders and, you know, panning and 
It's just, uh, just you have much more control over what you're listening to. Uh, when we decided with this uh, newest album, the Velvet Underground album, um, initially it was during the pandemic and the engineer was in New Jersey. Glenn's in New Jersey. I'm in central Florida. And um, we would exchange files uh, through the mail and through email. And uh, it just, it, it, became like way too problematic it wasn't something that was workable at all to to do that uh, you know i guess if we stuck with it maybe but you know you can't make a subtle change um you know with volume or a little bit of reverb or panning or whatever that easy without just like back and forth so it became a bit frustrating to to work that way and we eventually um stopped doing it till I totally so we were I, able to meet in person. I, I am reliving that in my head. I totally get that. <laughs> yeah. Because, well, their speakers are set up differently, and then your speakers, and did you hear that? No, like... <laughs> like... No, exactly. Uh, I, I do a lot of listening uh, in the car. Yeah, same. Um, yeah. I, I love driving and listening in the car, and even when I'm working on new music, it's just... Uh, I don't know. Maybe I, I know a lot of people have commented about the feelies music and and driving. So maybe there's some element there that uh, appeals to people. Well, it's definitely a driving sound. If that may, like the sound itself drives forward, and that I, I don't know. There's definitely like I think if you can make it sound good in the car, which is where most people listen to music. You know what I mean? Like, because not everyone's going to have the real nice speakers and the good setup and the room's acoustic set perfectly. They're going to hear it in their car. So if it can sound the best there, then then it's then it's right, you know? Yeah. Um, uh. And also the, to turn, like, one of the knobs on the programs where you got to click it and turn it, it's it's not the same as actually turning a knob. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but, uh, okay, so, like, well, then, uh, crazy rhythm, crazy rhythms come out, and then you guys play out for a bit, and then you take a break. Um, now, I was talking with, um, I guess, and on the on the concept of like of uh, mixing, I was talking with John and Tony. Um, so, when did you meet them and start like kind of uh, getting involved with the tripes? Um, probably. Right after Crazy Rhythms uh, came out, and again, they're they're. I mean, we went to high school with them, and uh, one of the tripes um, later in Speed to Plow, Mark. Uh, just to give you an example to underscore, I guess what I'm talking about is my wife went to school and have you know has known Mark since kindergarten. Um, so you know, and everyone kind of stayed. Uh, in the same area so it was you know discovering um you know other musicians that were longtime friends and uh at the time with the tripes uh you know anton had left the band um you know he wanted to you know our approach wasn't um you know we we made music for ourselves first and foremost and uh we weren't looking to go on these massively long tours. And I, I think Anton maybe had a different 
uh, sort of idea what how he wanted his own musical career to to go. And um, you know, we, and we've always kind of been very slow to uh, do things, so it didn't really fit his sort of timeline. So after he left, um, we didn't have a drummer, and uh, you know, we just decided to get involved in some other things. Uh, Glenn and I worked on the soundtrack for uh, Susan Seidelman's first film, Smithereens. Uh, we started uh, a band called The Willies. Uh, so, you know, Young Wu uh, was around, started to develop around that time where, you know, we went in and recorded a, a Young Wu album, which was pretty much, uh, uh, you know, again, it was like the feelies with Dave Dave's songs and Dave's singing, um, but also with the addition of John from the Tripes and Speed to Plow on keyboard. So, uh, you know, it was this kind of alternating sort of music scape, so to speak, where uh, it's just something we were interested in, in doing and, uh, and, you know, getting a lot of enjoyment out of doing it. Because when I was talking with John and Tony, they're, they were saying how you guys would do shows with the tripes and the willies and Dr. Wu <laughs> and like just switch, like rearrange who stood where. <laughs> like, and then well, it was exactly. the next band. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, and, and a lot of it, uh, you know, we kind of laughed about it. We thought, well, you know, we really disliked having to move equipment. And, um, you know, when you play, you know, when you're playing on a bill, especially like CBGBs, you could be on a bill with, multiple bands and uh we just thought well you know we could become our own opening band here there's an upside <laughs> just leave all the equipment on the stage and just switch positions and instruments and the show runs smoother <laughs> yeah yeah exactly exactly <laughs> when's the next band uh now <laughs> all right um so okay so the willies were, were was kind of born for that instrumental to come up, uh, instrumental music for for make it for film, is was Brenda involved at at the like the initial start of the Willies? Um, she, no, I don't think she was. I, I think she kind of came later. Um, Dave, Dave is probably um, the better person to ask a question like that. He he keeps a diary, and uh, I don't tend to remember the finer details. I just kind of take in the moment and, and move on. But he has a diary of dates and where we played and who we played with. And uh, it's kind of fascinating when he starts telling these stories. Because every now and then, you know, he'll just come out and just say, you know, it's on this date that Brenda played her first show with the Feelies. And, uh, you know, he's referencing his diary. And I wouldn't have a clue. I'm I'm cut from your cloth because I don't I don't <laughs> I don't write anything down, but I admire people who do. <laughs> like that's yeah, incredible. Yeah, it's good good to have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like, oh, you guys gotta it's gotta come with a, you gotta come with a Feely's book. That'd be sweet. Um, <laughs> but um, okay. Another so uh, the reason I brought up the tripes was when you started working with them, um, John was saying that you would run sound and play percussion from the other side of the soundboard so they'd be on stage and you would join them with something some percussion whatever you had around you or uh, from the sound booth 
Uh, yes, yeah, that would be correct. <laughs> uh, but, it, you know, and again, it, it was just always, the idea was, um, you know, we weren't, the upside was we weren't beholden to any any one, you know, like any record company or any concept or so, and we were playing local in our hometown. So, uh, do what we wanted and try what we wanted. And some, sometimes things, um, sometimes things worked out really well and we, you know, they became lessons that we maybe held on to or took in another direction. Sometimes they failed. Um, there were times when the Willies played, uh, Glenn and I had done a lot of like um, reel-to-reel recording at different speeds, and what the Willies would do would, you know, we'd have this. The tape deck was kind of another musician in the band, so to speak, and so we'd start the tape and uh, we'd play along with it. Um, the only catch was we needed someone to work the tape deck, and it was this big, you know. 10 and a half inch reels or whatever, a big Tascam deck. And uh, the person that we would have doing it sometimes would get the tape speeds wrong, um, which didn't, you know, obviously didn't work. So, yeah. uh, but we tried it and uh, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. <laughs> but it, it's made, seeing that as another instrument, as another tone to weave in through everything. I think that's that's an incredible way to look at it. Like, well, John's um, John's a great keyboard player. Uh, you know, he, he also plays accordion, uh, kind of part of his DNA, and uh, he's really good at it. But uh, there were a few songs where, you know, where I was eventually when I got on the stage with the band, um, we worked in like a really simple accordion part that i would play and uh i, I mean it was overwhelming yeah. <laughs> i don't know how anybody can play the accordion but uh it's just almost like you have to have several parts of your brain going simultaneously um quite a fascinating instrument but what i did was just it was more about sound than a specific part i mean it was a simple part but more of the sound um, than anything, tough instrument to play. Definitely, I ch- I got one and I had that button side. <laughs> like yeah, I get the. But when I, you're playing the buttons and then going in and out, it, yeah. you know, it's just uh, yeah, it's a challenge. <laughs> um, that's awesome. Like uh, I, Bill, I really appreciate you. Let me try to dive into some of the Feely's history here. Um, I want to so to kind of jump to the this new record. Um, so this was a live concert you guys did right in 2018. Yes. Okay. And being the first live record, so what can you tell me a little bit about that concert that was recorded? Uh, yeah, sure. So it kind of grew out of um, we, we there was a, a Velvet Underground exhibit i think it was called the velvet underground experience uh that was taking place in paris and this was a couple years prior to um the show that we recorded and the curators had reached out to us and 
said they were intending to bring this exhibit to New York City and they would love for us to be a part of it if we were interested. Um, being a part of it meaning to do a performance. Um, so we were, and so eventually they did um, bring the exhibit to New York and uh, they're having trouble, I think, with this space that they had originally secured it kind of fell through at the last minute. So they're having trouble securing a proper space for the exhibit. And um, it became obvious at a certain point that the space was too small to accommodate uh, a performance and they didn't necessarily have the sound equipment to, to accommodate it as well. So um, that's, you know, we decided to take that and play at a venue, you know, that wasn't, hadn't been around all that long um the white eagle hole in jersey city so and we knew the person who ran the the uh the venue he came from maxwell's uh so we we had a long relationship with him so kind of that's basically how it started and i think that um we had decided early on you know if it doesn't really interfere like optically with the band playing um we would we would record it and like did was were they asking for like a kind of a tribute set or was that your guys is like oh let's do this um i i, I actually i don't really recall um i i would think that yeah they knew that uh you know we were fans of the velvet underground they probably knew i mean the bands had a reputation for playing Velvet Underground covers here and there during encores. And so they probably knew that. And I, uh, I'm i guessing that they did probably ask. I just don't recall. Um, I don't think they were expecting a Feely set. Um, I'm, I'm not really sure what they were expecting. I think it was really up to us. Um, I don't think they were expecting a, an 18-song uh, Velvet Underground set. But... Um, yeah, so I think ultimately it's probably all of our choice. I think there was a lot of flexibility there as to what we did and what we decided to do. So were any of these, uh, I mean, some of them had to be. Um, I remember talking with Brenda, she was saying in Long Island, it, you guys, I, I forget what it was. There was some type of gig that Lou Reed was involved and you guys were like, if he played you would do some Velvet Underground or some songs with him if he came out and played. Like, I don't quite know the, the origin of the story, but the end result being that Lou came out and played and you guys, like, backed him. Yeah, actually, it, I always thought it was a funny story because what, what it was, it was a radio station Christmas party uh, that was out on Long Island. And they had a, a bunch of different, you know, artists that were playing and... Uh, Lou was one of them, and um, they had asked, you know, would the Feelys be interested in, in playing at this holiday party um, as well? And I th it might have been me. I, I don't recall, but I think, you know, we basically said, well, as a joke, you know, if, sure, we'll do it if Lou plays with us, <laughs> not expecting that to ever happen. Yeah. And... Uh, Lo and behold, I mean, he was real interested in in doing it, and uh, you know, that's that's kind of how it came about. And we ended up doing uh, you know a number of songs with him. And uh, I think 
afterward, he he really had um, seemed like he really enjoyed himself. Like had a real good time playing with us. Initially, he was a little hesitant to come up to the mic and sing, and um, and of course, you know, we we're playing these songs at a faster tempo than the Velvet Underground played. So um, the whole thing, I, I I thought was interesting, but I think he, you know, eventually. Glenn kept motioning him to come up to the mic. Um, Glenn was a little uncomfortable singing Lou Reed songs in front of Lou Reed. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, come on, Lou, take it. And uh, he did. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty exciting. Uh, he, I think he just really enjoyed himself. And what grew out of that show was he invited us to go on uh, tour with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you do you recall what songs you guys played that show? Uh I think Sweet Jane. Um I don't recall all of them, like European Sun, Run Run Run, maybe What Goes On. Might have been a few others. That's so cool. I think I think Stan has a tape of it. Yeah. Oh, that like you guys should that should be like in the bonus edition of this <laughs> of this new yeah actually that's right now if you'd only suggested that a couple months ago i've been waiting for the call <laughs> <laughs> um yeah that's okay so so that happened because lou's kind of a, a tough guy to read like from stories i've heard about him always haven't been like i mean i'm sure to for his own uh sanity and like for his own reasons he had to be a certain way so that's so cool that you guys like were welcoming and he was welcoming to you guys and like because how like to go back to the beginning of our conversation to one of those early bands that you're influenced by to be able not to only play with them in the room but play with them is like incredible yeah it was uh it, it was a, a bit mesmerizing to share a mic doing background vocals on one of the songs at that event uh, with him. I mean, it was just, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was interesting. But I know, you know, he he's had that reputation, um, but it was not anything that we ever experienced um, in the band, like when we were on tour with him. Uh, had, most nights, we'd all have dinner together. Um, very accommodating to the band. Uh, I, you know, I, Glenn, I know Glenn has kind of told the story where, um, you know, there was at one point, I guess, where their sound check was running long and he was told that the Feelies wouldn't get a sound check that, that night. And just, well, you know, if they're not going to get a sound check, then I'm not going to be playing. So, um, you know, the way he interacted with the band was a lot different than a lot of the stories you hear um, yeah. about him. Well, that's, I, that's amazing. And like, who you know, those stories you hear that probably just like, you know, someone's bad day or who knows, who knows what they asked them to, you know what I mean? Like, right. But like when you, that's that I, I didn't hear that story with the sound check. That's amazing. So like, I guess hanging out and being around him, what were some like, um, I mean, what were some like lessons that like you took away from that experience aside from just hanging out with Lou Reed? Um, I, I don't know if there, 
I don't know if I could cite a lesson. Um, yeah. He just was very, um, he was very demanding in terms of his own performance. Um, he would always check the drummer um, about parts. Uh, his hearing was, you know, sense of hearing was incredible. I mean, he, he actually was able to hear, you know, the difference between a nine and a 9.5 gauge string. Wow. Uh, which I found like oh really God. impressive. You know, he'd have amps kind of f- flown in uh, to try out. So he was always kind of pursuing, um, you know, whatever, however you want to call it, this pursuit of perfection that you could never kind of uh, never get to, but you can certainly pursue it. So it, maybe, maybe that, uh, but other than that, everything was pretty mundane and it's just, going about we're all going about our our business of playing we're sound checking we're having dinner and we're performing and then on to the next show was like i guess it's so maybe like on the other end of it like aside from that like perfection did you see like any like uh musical like kind of versions of that i guess i guess uh, or songwriting versions of that like did you see any like was he workshopping stuff in some of this new like on the shows like and like kind of like does that make sense my question i guess yeah uh, i i not not that i'm aware of uh we we've toured with um rem so i mean i i I get your question because rem um would do that i mean during their sound checks they would work on songs uh that that song they had, this one goes out to the one I love. Uh, not sure the title, but uh, they would they would sound check a lot with with that before it was released, and um, so they were kind of workshopping different different songs. But I, I can't say I remember anything. He kind of stuck to New York, the New York album. Mm. I guess that's if you want the room to sound right, the tune that you need to hear whatever and you know i mean if the, the voice the voice goes here i need to hear that over the drum or whatever it is that's right. pretty solid check that's incredible um and what a cool way now to be able to kind of like like capture that energy because i can't imagine like getting the tour with someone that it, it, it's getting the play and tour and be around someone that inspired you guys that much and then kind of be able to give back in your own way to to that legacy or at least capture that energy from that time in in a live record like you guys just did yeah yeah i don't i don't disagree um said it was we've never had a live album before and uh you know that that particular night i was kind of reflecting back on it recently and i was telling brenda that uh you know and thinking back on it it was really um i'm surprised that we even did it because it was was really an overwhelming task i mean not only did we play 18 velvet underground songs um a lot of which you know we we had done some of them but not all of them and so it was learning some some songs as well and uh it's a lot of a lot of music to go over and then we also worked on um the arrangements a, a little bit more, uh, primarily with Dave's part. So, you know, we'd add bells, we'd add like a triangle, um, 
you know, add some keyboard parts for him to play. And, um, but just taking on 18 songs was a lot. But then the same night we followed with um, a Feely set that, including the encores, was I think an additional like 19 songs. That's a, well, just even to do your set, you know, and know that you're recording someone else's stuff, you know, what I mean, there's a lot of like, oh, this is it. This has got to, like, a lot of pressure. Yeah. Well, in there. I, it, yeah, well, I didn't, I, I don't know, and I can only speak for myself, but I don't yeah. think, uh, I never really, the thought that we're recording um, during the performance didn't really enter my mind. I just, uh, you know, I, I knew beforehand, I mean, because I, you know, played a part in, making the arrangement to get it recorded but uh during the performance it wasn't um it wasn't part of part of my mindset at all uh and i think you know going into it um getting back to something i said earlier we we didn't want it to be a distraction so a lot of times uh we've been we've done shows where someone wanted to video um did a show in brooklyn um prospect park and uh they had this big boom camera that would go back and forth in front of the stage i, I mean you couldn't uh you couldn't <laughs> avoid yeah. not seeing it and uh i think one of the one of the key elements of kind of a successful feely set is not having those distractions um very easy for things to kind of knock us off track whether it's like a really loud feedback um sound or just something weird like that going on where all of a sudden now you're out of you're you know you've been pushed outside of the music and because of a distraction so we were kind of conscious very conscientious about like not wanting that distraction and um i think that was helpful i mean i don't think anybody really thought about the recording during the show the, the feely you guys definitely have like this trance like state i feel like like this almost hypnotic sense to you to how your guys' sets are put together like um I, and i i kind of and i think that the feely set like arrangement kind of is on the same wavelength with this uh, velvet set as far as it kind of sl- starts off slower in space and kind of builds like if I, I can't remember the exact track run, but I'm pretty sure run runs somewhere in the middle, like some of the higher, like uh, going from Sunday morning, you know what I mean? Like kind of building into that. Is that like a, a, I guess a way for you guys to focus or is that just kind of like a, kind of the emotional roller coaster of a concert set? Um, n- n- I, again, I, I'm only speaking for myself, but I, I yeah. think uh, to me there. You know, there's no, there's no drug in the world that's the equivalent of uh, getting lost inside a piece of music, and uh, where the world kind of just slowly washes away, and you're, you're completely enveloped. Um, and that, you know, just like I said, when you get distracted uh, by something that takes you outside of that, it's it's really it's a disappointment. Uh, but that's always that's kind of the goal to, to kind of disappear into the music and uh whether it's the feelies or playing a velvet underground song it's i think it's kind of always been there in our approach do you recall one of the 
first times you felt like that at a concert that you were at? Um, going, you mean going to see a band? Yeah. No, I, I, I can't say that. Uh, I, I think I'm speaking strictly from being a musician. Okay, from playing. Uh, not, so, not from, yeah, not from gotcha. being a, uh, you know, someone at a show. But, okay, was there a point where you kind of noticed that in playing? Like, you're like, this is everything. Like, I guess maybe uh, the reverse of that question. Do you remember the first time you experienced that playing music? Y yeah, I think, uh, you know, we, the, the band would always get into these really long, uh, extended jams when, you know, and we still do when we get together. And uh, a lot of them come out pretty interesting and uh, to the point where, you know, so well, it's too bad we didn't record that, and then we'll promptly forget what we all played. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, that's been going on for really uh, quite a long, quite a long time with the Feelies. I mean, probably way back to Crazy Rhythms, and I think uh, you know a lot of times, like my takeaway with a set or two sets. I mean, we play typically we don't have an opening band. So the feelies play like two sets and, um, you know, usually there's encores after that. So a lot of times it's the equivalent of like three sets. So it's, you know, it's like photography. If, um, you take like 25 photos and get two or three really good ones, uh, you know, you're, you're doing pretty good. And I think we're always kind of chasing that sort of idea with a song we're always trying to improve the song um even if it's a slight arrangement um change you know, a good example of that is uh, there was a song on crazy rhythms called face la and um both glenn and i always played electric guitar live on the song even though we recorded it differently and um we both had the same idea simultaneously you know not that long back well you know maybe Maybe this would be more interesting sound from a sound perspective if I played a six-string acoustic. Glenn stayed on electric, and uh, it sounded a lot. It really sounded a lot better. Um, it was improved, and uh, you know. And then there's another part in the same song where the percussion, the interaction between Dave and Stan, wasn't quite working. A lot of times, it had the feeling that you know they were kind of chasing each other. It's at the very end of the song and um, made a slight adjustment in what was being played. And, uh, you know, they did a great job. And again, it was an improvement. So you're always kind of looking at these things, thinking, how can we improve it? Um, how can we play it better uh, and get to that part where you're not you're no longer thinking about playing it? You're kind of lost in it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's that's when it's mastered. Right? When you just feel it. Yeah, I think so. Is it so that's that's your guys' kind of a Lou Reed's tone. It's <laughs> 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 <Is> an arrangement. <laughs> no, I think that's I think it's important to have like that that thing to always kind of like improve. Like as far as like recording, there there's a point where it's gotta be like, okay, it's it's done now. Because if not, you no one ever hears it and never leaves the room. But like, 
when performing it or when having some type of showing aspect of it that's that's i think it's important to have something to always kind of be like attempting to improve on yeah you you kind of raise a good point because i i think you have that um you you always have control whether you're in the studio or playing live but i think with live you you do get second chances and third and fourth chances on and on and on to have that um that ability with recording um you know unless you're I, you know i know the big story with taylor swift was she got her catalog back and uh i forget the finer details of the story but i think she re-recorded all of those songs that she got back um so you know with recording you don't um typically you don't get that chance you're not going to go back because you could look at a song and listen to the mix and kind of come to the conclusion wow we didn't we didn't quite get that one where we wanted it to be um but that's it you're kind of you're kind of stuck with it you live with it unless you decide to go back and re-record it but <laughs> yeah i think it's in also when it's out there and people like start to like it you know what i mean they're like oh i like that you know what i mean if you change it they're like whoa, whoa. <laughs> like yeah um when it becomes someone else's it's it's hard to like it's to really be like no this is how it should have been because <laughs> they're like oh, i don't know <laughs> yeah well uh, we had uh again like with crazy rhythms is uh, uh another good example of the point like the song raised eyebrows we recorded at um Carla Blaze studio in upstate New York. And, uh, you know, we got it exactly, we had worked on the song for quite a while and a lot of it, uh, the success of achieving what we wanted was centered around the drum part. And, um, you know, Glenn and I were kind of urging, uh, Anton to play a certain part and, you know, with just different descriptions. Uh, Glenn would go out and suggest a couple things in the studio. I'd kind of describe it like a 4th of July grand finale fireworks part, like anything to get us where we want it to be. And uh, so we recorded it as a demo and um, we were real happy with the way it came out. When, when we went to do Crazy Rhythms in New York, um, we just we weren't even close to getting it to where we wanted. There was not, nothing that was taking place that uh, sounded right to us. And, you know, a lot of it is um, how harmonics come into play in a given studio and how things uh, work on tape. And it just it wasn't happening. So we ended up, um, we decided to use the demo from Carla Blaze studio. Hmm. That's what? It's 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 wild. It's wild how like how a room can do that, you know. Did you guys like as far as like describing, like, or communicating with um with like drummers or other musicians? Was it more like that? Was it more of like a kind of a metaphoric like we're looking for like like how you were saying like fireworks or something like? Did you have like that type of like? Was that the kind of way to always kind of paint these pictures or was there more like musical like oh 16th notes blah 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 um no it, it, not really uh okay. you know that that one just kind of comes to mind just because that's what it 
kind of always reminded me of uh, that sort of sound. But um, no, usually it's a little bit more straightforward. Okay. Uh, maybe, you know, follow with the Tom, you know, part what I'm doing. Or, you know, maybe we could work together on this one type of phrase, phrasing. And, uh, you know, or, or Glenn would just say, why don't you just bring, if you're going to play a cymbal, just bring it in here uh, or not. Or maybe Dave can play this part. Um, so, no, I think it's it's probably more like pointed um, to whatever the parts are. But were like Feely's songs kind of like when when one would be would were they written through jam or would like you or glenn or someone come in with like a kind of like i got this idea and or a song structure then expanded upon um it, it depends on the song uh glenn being the uh, being the singer you know he a lot of times he'll come in with a com complete song and may rework it a little bit or uh you know, change a part here or there, but, uh, you know, there's, there's that part of it. Um, some songs do come out of jams, uh, on time for a witness. Uh, we had gotten in the habit of trying to record every time, every time we got together. And there's a couple songs on, um, on that album, uh, the song time for a witness and decide grew out of jams. Uh, you know, really lengthy jams and we just kind of edited them down um kept working on them and came up with the, the finished song um the other you know part is a lot of times the things that i contribute to the band i'll record at home send them up to glenn uh he'll add parts and you know we'll, we'll go from there when we get together um and start recording now with the, with the last album we did in between, um, we had the luxury of, uh, you know, even though we had a lot of, you know, pretty good ideas in, in terms of arrangement, we also had the luxury because we weren't in a official recording studio to have the flexibility of uh, trying out parts, um, getting, you know, again, going back to, uh, will we, will this work or will we, or will the idea like just fail um but it was a nice position to to be in like, you know let's try this let's try this background vocal part uh yeah that sounds good let's let's double it you know that sort of thing and uh you know that kind of just grew out of not having to sit there um and be concerned about studio time and, and dollars uh, being spent no, that definitely, that definitely, um, I guess, caps the brush a little sooner. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, when that's a factor. But that's cool. That's cool. So, so with the Good Earth, like you guys really like with that record, that I that acoustic tone, like the acoustic guitar, I felt was much more prominent. Was that something like in Crazy Rhythms you guys were thinking about, like adding that sound, or what kind of like? brought that into that next record so i i think you know with crazy rhythms there are a couple songs uh that do have an acoustic guitar um original love and like i said face la and a lot of a lot of our music is 
kind of rooted in root chords. Um, not that we were big folk music listeners, but uh, it's kind of like that. There's a lot of root chords and it kind of contributes to um, a lot of the harmonic interplay, I should say, like between the guitars, uh, because notes are ringing out louder than they would with a bar chord. And, um, it, you know, the the element of that was already there. And I think um, just like prior to The Good Earth, we had gone on a uh, cross-country tour. And I think, you know, doing that tour kind of influenced, um, you know, what, what we were thinking. We certainly didn't want to remake crazy rhythms. I mean, it didn't make any sense to us and we weren't really interested in doing it. So um, that kind of steered us in that more in that direction. That's a, it definitely like fills it's a it fits so well. Like it's a very beautiful like um like tone weaved in. It's it and also it's it's incredible kind of going through your history and your guys's history and like how intertwined like just everyone kind of around your hometown like was um and one thing i wanted to say earlier um when you're on the soundboard and you're like experimenting with like percussion while the tripes are playing and like while you're playing with them like one thing i that i find really inspiring about that is that even though it could it could go the wrong way or it could go the right way you guys had this kind of trust um in like oh to Bill's adding to it. It's fine. You know what I mean? Like, not many, not many musicians, you know, are cool with that. And like, they're up and perfecting the song. Don't add whatever to it, you know? So, like, I guess, I guess what I'm saying with that is like, I think that's so cool that you guys were able to do that then and still continue now and intermingle and support every, support each other. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I, I mean, I've kind of recently started uh, to refer to it as like, you know, it's our social club um, <laughs> because I, cool. I think our approach is is kind of it's like that. The feelies don't play uh, all that much, uh, you know, we'll play like maybe four or five times a year. And, you know, we're able to kind of keep that perspective and make it more of like a celebratory sort of um, occasion for us where. We're getting together. We're we're seeing a larger sort of um, community out, just outside of the band. Our crew. Uh, we have a great crew um, and friends that you know we've been involved with, even non musicians that are always there at the shows. And uh, it it is kind of like a social club sort of gathering, and with kind of like with the feelies, maybe perhaps being the center of it. But you do have all these other groups like Speed to Plow. Uh, we recently started up uh, with the Willies again. Yeah. Um, and John and Tony joined us for quite a few numbers. And, uh, you know, everyone, um, you know, everyone really enjoyed doing it to such an extent that we started talking about maybe making, uh, you know, like a Willies recording or even doing something along the lines of like maybe a low inspired sort of tracking concept where part of it's the feelies and part of it's the willies. Um, we haven't got to, you know, that point yet to decide what we're going to do, but 
I think a lot of it is, you know, we're just um, because of that approach, uh, you know, it's somebody messes something up. It's not the end of the world. Yeah, that's so cool because there's nothing there's no released Willie's recordings, right? No. So that would be so cool. Was it or or maybe like a, a peanut gallery, like a, a, a um, showcase where it's all the bands like doing a tune or two on the like. Well, there there, I know there are quite a few tapes from that period. Um, some of them are interesting, you know, maybe from the perspective of, oh, we we did this and this actually might sound good. Maybe we should uh, start working on that. That, like that sort of thing but the recordings themselves uh leave a little bit to be desired <laughs> but that's exciting man bill i really i really appreciate your time i'm a huge fan and um i love having an excuse to get to dig into your history and your music and this new record's fantastic um cool. do you guys have any any shows or anything coming up to plug uh, along with the record um we're playing in, uh, you know, when you said that, I immediately thought of all these people that go on these talk shows and uh, <laughs> with my book, <laughs> you know, uh, it's kind of kind of interesting um, concept for the feelies, plugging a show. But uh, we are playing in um, Woodstock, uh, I think, I think the 16th of November, it's Thursday night, and then the following night. Friday, I think the seventeenth in Philadelphia at World Cafe, and then um, gotcha. Well, I'll I'll keep that under wraps unless I hear from you. Um, that's so exciting though. That's cool. Um, awesome, man. Well, Bill, thank you for everything. I really appreciate your time and really appreciate sure. uh, getting the chat with you and for the remake <laughs> from last yeah. week. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No worries. Awesome. Uh, yeah, it was good talking to you, Dave. Spiegel here. You just listen to Zig at the Gig podcast. Keep riding the bebop. See you, Space Cowboy. Bang.